I'm Haley B. Miller, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends. Welcome back to another episode of Ohio Politics Explained, the Don't Forget Your Photo ID edition. This week, we're explaining which former state lawmaker is in trouble, why Michigan may not like issue two, what you need to know about the state's voter ID rules, and how the Supreme Court ruled on a property theft sentence. With me today is our resident Michigan expert, Laura Bischoff. Welcome back. Go blue. Controversial. (laughs) As always. Before we get going today, a quick request. If you find OPE helpful or interesting, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback helps us improve what we do, and it also helps get more ears on the podcast. To kick things off, let's talk about Tim Grindel. The former state rep and juvenile judge has a disciplinary case later this month, and the allegations are not great. The complaint says that Grindel tried to force two brothers to spend time with their estranged dad, and then when they refused, he detained them in juvenile detention. He also threatened police and blocked a mom from testing her kids for COVID. Grindel has a pretty long history in Ohio politics, which makes this even more eye-popping. Yeah, so um, Tim Grindel, he is a longtime figure in Ohio politics. He His wife was in the legislature and then got out due to term limits. And then Tim took over his wife's seat and his wife, Diane, went to the appeals court. And then later, Tim was appointed by then Governor John Kasich to the Common Pleas Court bench in Geauga County back in 2011. And then Diane returned to the House, but then just left again. But Grinnell made um, national headlines over his conduct on the bench. Um, He's been very controversial. A lot of it has to do with his skepticism over the severity of the of the um, COVID nineteen pandemic. And one of the one of the actions he took was um, telling this mom she couldn't administer or have anyone administer COVID tests on, on her two kids. And didn't he testify in favor of one of his wife's bills that dealt with COVID? Yeah. So Diane Grindel was sponsoring a bill um, that had to do with um, the veracity of the statistics presented by the Ohio Department of Health. And the judge came and, and testified on that bill. But what I thought was most interesting is that there are these two teenage brothers who really didn't have any relationship with their dad. And it was this big custody case. And the brothers were told that they had to go visit the dad. And when they refused, the judge gave a verbal order to have them detained in the juvenile detention center over a long weekend and had all these restrictions like that they couldn't make phone calls home or they could only have phone calls with their dad, but not their mom and that they should be separated from one another. And now, of course, this is all kind of wrapped up into this uh, multi-day disciplinary hearing, which it was supposed to start at the end of October, but it got bumped because one of the participants had some sort of a medical issue. So it's, it's looking like it'll start sometime in November and it's expected to stretch over, you know, four days or so. What are the consequences for Grindel if the allegations are proven? Well, this three-judge panel um, has to consider all the evidence over the over that multi-day day hearing. And if they have a finding that says that, yeah, he, he crossed the judicial ethics lines, then ultimately it's up to the Supreme Court that, to mete out punishment. Punishment can be anything from a public reprimand to disbarment. And since he's elected, I mean, what does that mean for his position as judge? Well, you might recall back um, earlier this year, the the court disbarred uh, a municipal judge in Cleveland, Pinky Carr, for judicial misconduct. And she, you know, if you're if you're disbarred, you're no longer a lawyer, and you can't you can't serve as a judge. So they removed her from the bench and took away her law license. Interesting. We'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Our second topic today is why Michigan may not be the biggest fan of Issue 2. 
the state up north, as some like to call it, legalized recreational marijuana in 2018. Dispensaries make good money off Ohio customers, especially the ones along the border. That's because people here think Ohio's medical marijuana program is too much of a headache and the prices are a lot better in Michigan. I went up to Monroe, Michigan, which has a row of marijuana dispensaries called Dispo Row, which may be my favorite nugget from that trip. Ohioans make up most of their customer base and managers know they'll lose some business if Ohio okays adult use marijuana, but they aren't sweating it too much, at least not yet. Yeah, it looks like the Michigan prices are are such a big draw for the Ohio consumers. Your story said that dispensaries used to sell an eighth of an ounce for sixty bucks, and now it's going for as low as twenty bucks for an eighth of an ounce. So that's a that's a big discount. And so you know, I know Michigan and Ohio State have a big um, football rivalry as a long tradition. Maybe um, if issue two is approved by Ohio voters, we could see a marijuana pricing competition. Yeah, the prices up there are wild, and it took Michigan a long time probably four or five years for the market to really get online and for the prices to get to that point. And that has happened because the market is really saturated, which presents its own challenges. But that says to me that if Ohio is ever going to see prices like that, it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of supply and a lot of demand. And while licenses are supposed to go out, if issue two passes within nine months of the election, they're still going to take a lot of work for these businesses to really get off the ground and to get this going. I think your story said that Crane's Business Detroit, um, which is like a business trade publication, said that 75% of the sales in Michigan are are legal sales um, instead of on the black market. And it's largely because um, the supply is so high and the prices are so low. But I think that that helps point to the fact that, you know, Michigan's five years ahead of Ohio in this market. And so it's already been developed. Yeah. And that is one of the big points that proponents of issue two make. They say that this could kill the illicit market in Ohio if it passes the percentages vary based on that Cranes report. I think like California, for instance, only 44% of the sales were still were legal, but it depends a lot on the tax structure. And Ohio and Michigan will have similar tax rates. So we will um, have to see what happens. But first, we have the election to get through. Speaking of the election, our third topic is an important reminder. You need a photo ID to vote at the polls on November 7th. Ohio enacted a new election law this year that requires voters to show an unexpired photo ID when they vote in person, either on election day or voting early, if you're voting early. The law made a bunch of other changes to the voting process, but the photo ID rule has gotten the most attention. Despite that, though, a lot of people had provisional ballots rejected for lack of ID during the August 8th special election. One eye-popping stat to me was that that number was four times greater than the ballot rejections because of ID issues in November 2022. How do you think this election is going to go? Um, I think that, that we'll probably see a pretty high rate of rejections because people won't have the proper ID. I think that there's sort of a learning curve to it. And, um, you know, having this kickoff in an odd year election when typically turnout is lower is usually how they try to present new voting changes. But I think that voter turnout is going to be you know, pretty robust with two controversial issues on the ballot. So you might see um, quite a few number of people who, who, um, you know, get to the polls and they go, oh, I didn't know that I needed to have an ID. I can't present my utility bill anymore. So the list of um, acceptable photo IDs are your driver's license, a state ID, a U.S. passport, passport card, military ID, or one of those interim identifications issued by the BMV. So make sure you have that in hand. Yeah, it's been interesting to see this 
roll out because even though it is an odd year, it's been a very busy odd year. And I think slowly more and more people are realizing that this is a requirement. But I was talking to Aaron Ackerman from the Ohio Association of Election Officials, and he said there, even though these elections this year have been pretty big, there are still some people that only vote in a presidential year. Yeah. And I'll also remind people that when they go to the polls, to be, be nice to the poll workers. These are your friends and your neighbors, and my husband is one of them. Yes. And it is not an easy job right now. So our final topic is a state Supreme Court decision issued this week that has a really big impact on one person's life. Susan Gwynn worked at nursing homes and assisted living facilities in Delaware and Franklin counties, and she stole thousands of items from residents there. Then a Delaware County judge sentenced her to 65 years in prison for theft. Gwynn appealed the sentence, but the state Supreme Court upheld it in their ruling. Laura, there is a lot going on here. Break it down for us. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. So she pled guilty to multiple um, felony charges, and the judge gave her what's what's called consecutive sentences. That's where you stack them end to end rather than concurrent sentences. And because there were so many charges, she ended up with a string of 65 years in prison. And these are for nonviolent property crimes. I mean, it was bad. She, you know, she stole from um, very frail victims, and it was perpetrated over several years. And she certainly, you know, def- deserves punishment. But the court is very divided over, you know, how that should be meted out. So she appealed her sentence, and it went to the Ohio Supreme Court in December of 2022, and it was a four-three ruling. This is back when Maureen O'Connor was on the court, and they sent her sentence back to the Court of Appeals and said, hey, review whether the trial court was off base with this 65-year consecutive sentencing. And then there was a change in control of the court. Sharon Kennedy became the chief justice and Joe Dieters joined the court as the appointee to backfill uh, Kennedy's seat. And the um, court voted lickety split 4-3 to reconsider that December 2022 ruling. Fast forward to this week, and we just got another 4-3 split ruling that upheld the the 65-year sentence. Kennedy wrote the majority opinion saying the appellate's courts generally have to defer to the trial courts on sentencing decisions, and you can only change them if there's clear, convincing problems with the trial court's findings. This case has produced a couple of sharp dissents. Justice um, Jennifer Bruner noted that like 65-year sentences are usually for people who are convicted of violent, heinous crimes, not property theft. And uh, Melody Stewart um, wrote a dissent in which she said that like this decision just continues the muddled law about when consecutive sentences can and should be imposed. Yeah, it's a really shocking sentence given the crime, again, not downplaying what she did, but since it was not a violent crime, it's just really surprising to me. You know, I mentioned that this has a big impact on Gwen's life, but, you know, since this is a state Supreme Court decision, I mean, is this going to affect cases in the future? Yeah, it impacts like how much judicial, how much review appellate courts might do on, on trial court sentences. And keep in mind, I think I got some data from the Department of Rehabilitation and Correction at one point that showed something like 10,000 people that are serving consecutive sentences. And again, consecutive sentences are supposed to be reserved for if, you know, the regular sentence would kind of diminish the severity of the crime. And so there's a place for those. But really, the question is, what's the appropriate use of consecutive sentences? Right. And one more thing before you go. 
A proposed constitutional amendment on the right to hunt and fish got its first hearing this week. Lawmakers say this is an important part of the state's heritage that should be protected, even though there aren't really any threats to either activity right now. What do you make of this? I, you know, it seems it's always suspect when the lawmakers just roll some constitutional amendment out of thin air and put it on a presidential ballot year. It maybe it's uh, designed to gin up um, turnout on one particular side of the voting ledger. Yeah, I talked to Rep. Ron Ferguson about this, who sponsored the proposal, and he said, you know, a lot of people are concerned about federal executive orders. There's been some debate over initiatives in Oregon, but good news for hunters and fishers in Ohio, I guess. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can check us out on X formerly known as Twitter, at Ohio Explained. 